Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. On January 29th, 1963, the inaugural class was inducted to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. In this same year, a man that grew up a little more than an hour away from Canton started his head coaching journey, which would culminate with his own bronze bust in 1997. Voting him in was easy, and it all revolved around a number 347. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is January 29th, 1963, and we're over in Canton, Ohio, because we're going to witness the beginning of an annual tradition that revolves around some bronzed busts. Yes, that's the Hall of Fame inductions. A great weekend every year. This is awesome sight to see. It's an awesome time. But something else that happened that would end up being awesome for the league was in the same year, Coach Don Shula, he was previously a defensive coordinator for the Detroit Lions, and he showed some grit and tenacity. So they decided, Carol Rosenblum, that is, he decided he was going to make Don Shula his head coach for the Baltimore Colts. Now, Don Shula was only 33 years old at the time, the youngest NFL head coach in history up to this point. Now, this isn't the only mark that he made on the league, of course. We all know him as the winningest coach in NFL history. Or how about perhaps hmm, the 1972 perfect season? Well, Shula would end up with an overall record, including postseason, that is, of 347 wins, 173 losses, and six ties. That 347 mark, though, yeah, that's the most in NFL history. And again, many remember him as just the head coach for the Miami Dolphins, or at least from my era, because we don't really think much before the 1972 Super Bowl season. Now, they did go to the Super Bowl the season before, but then they lost it. So in 1972, yes, perfect season. However, that's not the only thing to remember him by because before he was with Miami, he was very successful in Baltimore. Yes, there was a guy there already, a guy by the name of Johnny Unitas. So this week's guest had to come in to kind of explain a little bit of the late Coach Shula's relationship with Johnny U and the Baltimore Colts. Now, if you're listening to this in the future, then... Uh, I'm not going to tell you that last Monday, Coach Shula passed away because that wouldn't make any sense. The legendary Coach Shula passed away on May 4th of 2020 at the age of 90. Now, 
thought it'd be a good idea bring somebody on the show to talk a little bit about Coach Shula's early career, that is with the Baltimore Colts. Jack Gilden wrote a book about this particular time frame. Jack Gilden's book is about the dynamic, basically the relationship between Unitas and Shula, which he called The Collision of Wills. So, I'll go ahead and leave links in the show notes to this book, The Collision of Wills, and some other links for Jack's site and some more on Don Shula if you want to go ahead and take a look at it. Which, by the way, you can get to the show notes for your podcast player or by heading to thefootballhistorydude.com. Again, that's thefootballhistorydude.com. It's the best place to go to get even more information about the topics and guests that I bring on the show. Also, if you'd like to kind of get more involved, maybe help the show out, you can support the show in various ways. You can review the show, subscribe, offer a donation, or even get some merchandise. Again, that's over at thefootballhistorydude.com. But for now, let's get into the interview with Jack Gilden and learn about the collision of whales. Hey, Jack, welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. And I had to have you on the episode. Um, unfortunately, we lost a great hero here recently. Um, you've written a book that highlighted an earlier portion of his career and getting to the point where we ultimately, my generation, knew him as the 72 Dolphins. But let's take that a step back further and let's talk about your book, Collision of Wills and Don Shula. What made you decide to write that book in the first place? Well, when I was about 15 years old, I uh, happened to be standing behind a, a, a very famous uh, Baltimore journalist named John Stedman, and he had been on the scene here since the 1950s, probably, grew up here, and he had he knew everything there was to know about the Colts. And I was standing behind him one day when I happened to hear him tell someone that Unitas hated Shula. And that was shocking to me because the two men were so well associated with each other. They were two big, two big winners. And, uh, when I heard him say that, I thought to myself, that'd be a great idea for a book. And the more I looked into it, the, you know, the mystery grew a little bit. They had won so much together in, in Baltimore, uh, but they, they, uh, couldn't win the championship together. I thought, wow, this is so interesting. A guy who you could really easily say would be the greatest coach in the history of, of football. He, I mean, obviously that would be arguable, but he, he would be in that conversation. And then another guy who you could say easily could be the greatest player who ever played football. And that one would be probably even less of an argument. And, uh, yet when they were together, they couldn't win a single championship after seven years together. So I thought that's, you know, that's mysterious. It's, you know, I like things that are a little bit more uh, interesting than just a straight bio of when somebody is born, lives, and dies. And, you know, I like things that kind of have some texture to that. And I thought that story would be would be a great, great story to tell. Sounds like it was like uh, you had your general pinpoint focus. And then from there, you just told that story that unraveled that most people really didn't necessarily focus on and myself. I really had no clue about Don Shula. I, as a Detroit Lions fan, kind of feel uh, disappointed that I didn't realize he was the defensive coordinator there until I started this podcast and learning more about the history of the game. Uh, can we go back to the beginning of Coach Shula's career and kind of go with the timeline of like how did he get into the NFL and all the way through the 72 season? Well, I... This would be that timeline. So he grew up in, in on the outskirts of Cleveland. His father was 
did, you know, kind of nondescript blue collar work. He, uh, first worked at a, in a hot house, uh, making, uh, cuttings of, of planting. Uh, and then later on, he moved on to work on a fishing boat. I guess that he must have been out on Great Lakes, uh, fishing. Shula would go out with him sometimes and, uh, couldn't, for the rest of his life, couldn't stand boats or the smell of fish. He hated it. Um, then, uh, he got involved with sports. He was very athletic. He was considered to be a very fast runner at that time. And, uh, you know, in his high school scene, Went on to play college, uh, play college football, but on the, you know, a little bit more on the small time at John, John Carroll, which is located near Cleveland. And then, uh, Paul Brown and his coaches, and most prominently Weed Eubank, uh, went out to scout, uh, Syracuse when they were playing in Cleveland and they happened to be playing John Carroll. So they wanted to scout the Syracuse players, but while they were there, one, uh, one coach in particular, Weeb, had uh been impressed by Shula and another player uh that was a teammate of Shula's named Carl Tassif. And the Browns ended up drafting uh Shula and Tassif for their for their team and Shula made the Browns and in his rookie season he had a nice number of interceptions. He was a de- he was a running back when they scouted him, but they made him a defensive back. And so he uh had a nice, you know, number of interceptions. I can't remember what it was, it was probably about four or five. Um and, uh, and, uh, he had a really nice, uh, rookie season for them. Then he went into the army and he played far fewer games the next year. And I guess they lost their interest in him and they had a gigantic trade with the Colts where like 10 or 15 players changed hands. I can't remember. And, uh, so he ended up with the Colts. And then a year later, we Eubank came to the Colts, uh, the guy that had originally noticed him and drafted him and, uh, and so he became Shula's head coach. And in case you don't know, and Weeb Eubank, you could make a very good case that he's the greatest coach in the history of the league. He won three NFL titles, two with the Colts and one with the Jets. He built both, uh, both franchises from the ground up. And Shula was an important player in the early, early Colts. So he, he, uh, has nice interception totals with the Colts. He was their defensive uh, play caller, and uh, he was a pretty nice player. But um, as time went on, it became apparent that he didn't really have the speed to play in a more modern NFL. So, for instance, players like Lenny Moore were coming into the league, or even a guy like Raymond Barry that you wouldn't think of as being terribly fast, but he was very challenging for, for Shula to cover. So Unitas and Barry were two nobodies that came to the Colts. I think Barry was like a 20th round futures pick and Unitas had already been cut from another team, which was a big ignominy in those, those days. And, uh, but every day in practice, Unitas and Barry, these two long shots are lining up against Shula, who was an established player and they're lighting him up on the field and they're highlighting the fact that he doesn't really have it physically to compete anymore. So he's released from the Colts before the 57 season He's got a famously bad temper, and he's angry, puts on his sunglasses as he has to leave because he had to walk past his teammates when he was cut, gets in his car, and drives around the Beltway, which is a big looping highway that surrounds Baltimore, and just drives in a circle on it all day because he's so angry. (laughs) And so he ends up getting picked up by the Redskins, and the Colts 
uh, played the Redskins in 1957. I think they played them in November. And uh, Raymond Barry was lined up right right in front of Shula, and he he uh, had 250 yard receiving day, which would be gigantic even today by today's standards. Had 250 yards receiving, two touchdowns, and uh, that pretty much was the end of Don Shula's playing career. So Unitas and Barry kind of chased him out of Baltimore and then chased him out of the NFL. So you had talked about the fact that he had been the defensive coordinator in Detroit. So he knocked around a couple of uh, colleges first. He was at Virginia. Then he went to, uh, to the University of Kentucky with Blanton Collier. And, uh, and then he ended up, uh, eventually at the Detroit Lions as defensive coordinator. And in 1962, it became very, I think he was defensive coordinator of the Lions for three years. And he was the one person who could both shut down Lombardi's offense and he could shut down United's. Detroit's defenses were unbelievable under him. And uh, in 1962, uh, Detroit was the only team that beat the Packers. And so in two games against the Packers, I think the the Packers had only one touchdown against uh, the Lions' defense, and you know, total in those two games, and uh, one or two touchdowns. And um, uh, the Packers' offense was number one in the league that year. They rolled the league. They were unbelievably good. So... He became, so the Colts ended up firing Weed Eubank at, at that point, and he, Shula came in. He's only a year or two older than Unitas, and he became the head coach in Baltimore. And that was, that was kind of how it, how it went. And then in his seven years in Baltimore, in the middle five years of their seven years, they averaged two losses per year over, over that time period. And then, uh, after Super Bowl three, things went downhill, and he ended up with the Dolphins. Yeah, and there's a uh, unique dynamic there with Super Bowl three and the guy that helped bring him into the league too with uh, Weeb Eubank. Right, he lost he lost Super Bowl three to Weeb Eubank, and some would say he got out coached in that game. So when he came to the Colts, he was what the youngest head coach to that point in time in NFL history. I believe so. I believe he was either the youngest or the second youngest. He was very young. He was young, younger than some of his players, and so, uh, many of them were his former teammates, and, and he was younger than some of them. He's only a year or two older than Unitas. Was that common back then to have a younger uh, coach come no. in the league, or is it always the old-timers? Well, I wouldn't say it was always the old-timers, because they, they talk about Vince Lombardi being so old when he finally got his chance, but he was like, I don't know, like 45 or something like that when he finally became coach. So I wouldn't say they were old timers, but you know, I mean, those men were rough, tough men that most of them had been to war, you know, and had military experience. And, and, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that it would be common for a guy as young as Shula to become a, a head coach at that time. You know, his competitors were mostly guys like Paul Brown and, and, uh, Lombardi and, and, uh, George Hallis. So they were they were tough old men and and Shula. Yeah, I mean, in today's modern NFL, it's it's been talked about a lot lately. Where a lot of these newer style young coaches are coming in the league. I was wondering if it was similar back then, where it was like a change of the guard. I guess you could say. No, I don't think so. And it, it was much discussed when he came in about how how young he was and whether or not he could handle it. When Carol Rosenblum interviewed him. 
he he said, well, uh, you know, how, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that you're ready for the opportunity yet. And, and Shula gave him an answer that he liked to hear when he said, the only way you're ever going to know is if, is if you hire me and give me the opportunity, you know, and, and uh, Rosenblum hired him. And he was a big, big winner, you know. He's, yeah, I mean, he got off to a slow start his first season, but he still improved on Eubanks last season. And then the next year, I mean, he had the Colts totally turned around. They they had been languishing for a number of years under Eubank, and uh, even in his first season. But by the next season, they led the league in offense, they led the league in defense, and they, they made the uh, the title game. What do you think was the biggest difference between the way that Eubank left the team and then when Shula came in and turned them around? Well, I don't think most people understand, but Eubank was a, was a fantastic coach, and he was a brilliant personnel man. So the biggest difference was in, in 1960, the AFL started. So they had their first draft that year, and the Colts were unprepared for for the competition because they'd been two-time champions and uh, their general manager was living on a contract in which he made a bonus for saving money. And that, that was a part of his deal. I guess it was probably based on the way the Yankees compensated their general manager and they were so successful. So he made a bonus on saving money. And so he put the foot down on the draft picks and the Colts had a brilliant draft that year and end up losing, like, I think, you know, maybe their first six or seven picks all went to the AFL. And their first pick that year was Ron Mix, who ended up becoming a, a Hall of Famer with the Chargers. He was a tackle. So you would have had Jim Parker on one side, and you would have had Ron Mix on the other. They uh, got a running back. Um, his name always jumps out of my head. He's a great one. He ended up playing for the for the Cowboys instead, even though the Cowboys weren't in the AFL. Because the Cowboys had to fight the AFL, this this running back ended up going to the – like the league basically gifted him to the Cowboys. And uh, so the Colts missed out on him. So the big problem with the Colts was is that Alan Amici tore his Achilles tendon in 1960, I think. And then they had to rely so much on Unitas over the next couple of years. They knew they had to fix the uh, running back problem, but it wasn't easy. And because, and so with just Unitas passing and, and the running not a threat, they were teeing off on Unitas. So the big difference was when Shula got there, they were able to recover from the draft where they lost all these solid picks and Shula got the running game cranked up again. I mean, basic, and he said it himself when he got there, he, he was basically doing the same things that Eubank was doing. You know, the team was not, didn't need a major overhaul. It just needed to be fine tuned. And, uh, they were able to, you know, the running game finally had recovered by the time he, he got there, and that took a lot of pressure off Unitas. You could see his attempts went way down, his interceptions went way down, and the team started to perform there. So by 1964, you have this young guy running running the team, and he beat Lombardi's Packers twice in, in the uh, regular season. I think they beat the Bears twice in the regular season, and they made the championship game. I wonder what the press was like back then covering it because of not having his, you know, the 24 seven, like we have nowadays, if Shulu, right. was he, was he considered just like this new wave taking over the league? You think? No, I don't think so. I think they just felt that it was just unique to him. I think 
you know, for a lot of people, you know, they were caught off guard about Shula, but not in Baltimore because he played here for, you know, a number of years. So the, the press here knew him. But I don't think that he was seen as a new wave so much, you know, because it was the old geezers that were still running the show, you know, Lombardi, uh, Paul Brown. Well, Paul Brown had just gotten fired at the same time we did, but Paul Brown, uh, or I'm sorry, Lombardi and Hallis and guys like that were still, you know, still the guys. And Unitas was there. Um, did he have that? I've always heard he had that legendary, like, he's the he's the face of the NFL type of thing back then. Was that that collision of wills that you talk about with Shula? Let's let's dig into that a little bit. Well, they never they had terrible chemistry. I think personally, and this is the way I wrote it in the book. I think it really went back to those days, those practice field days. You know, I think uh, I think that for two men that were crazy competitive like they were. So Raymond Berry said to me. He said, I was in the NFL for about 50 years as a player and a coach. And he said, in my time in the NFL, I never met two, I never met any man as competitive as either one of those two guys. They were crazy competitive. So those practice field, you know, duels that they had, it had to leave a lasting impression on them, especially with Shula. And I think that they just didn't have, they didn't have good chemistry. And then when Shula came in, you know, I think that he really wanted to grab a hold of that offense. He, but United thought of him as a defensive coach. You know, he was, he played defense and then he was defensive coordinator at the Lions. And, you know, Tom Maddy, the running back said to me that he felt like United kind of felt it like, uh, like Shula was, wasn't really the head coach. He was the head coach of the, of the defense and United saw himself as the head coach of the offense. And so, you could see, you know, like even in photographs, you know, I could see pictures of like Shula leaning into the huddle in training camp, listening in on the play call, and you could almost just see Unitas's uh, hair standing on end. You could tell how much he hated it. And, um, you know, and I think that, you know, play calling became a major issue between them and, and, uh, and control of the team. And then, you know, Shula was very critical of Unitas right off the bat and, and, and publicly. You know, he, uh, the very first game they ever played together was a preseason game against the Eagles in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And, uh, the Colts were winning by like five or something like that with, uh, with, the, uh, time running off on the clock and a defensive back on the Eagles taunted Unitas and told him to throw it, throw it in his direction. And of course, all he had to do was hand it off and, and run the clock out, but he took the taunt. He heaved up this long pass to Jimmy Orr and the guy from the Eagles picked it off and then he came running down the field zigging and zagging down the field and just before he could score uh jimmy Orr heel slapped him and he went to the ground and, and uh, the clock ran out and the game was over and um and the colts won but you know that was that was day one between between Shula and united with united doing something crazy like that and uh you know the play calling became a major major issue between the two of them yeah, did I was it your book that I saw where Unitas was used to calling all of his own plays and then Shula came in and it was totally disruptive because now Shula wanted to control it? Yeah, I mean that is in my book, it's a big part of it and uh but Unitas wasn't only used to calling all of his own plays, he was he was considered the canniest play caller in football. You know, he was in his play calls in the 58 championship game 
later on, the middle linebacker of the Giants, uh, Sam Huff, you know, was interviewed and said he, he felt like Unitas could read his mind. It was like no matter what I called, he had the perfect play call to counteract it. And he, he said, I, ju- I just got the sense eventually that he, he knew exactly what I was going to do and he had it figured out. You know, so he was considered quantum leap, uh, better, uh, uh, play caller than, than anybody else in, in football. And, uh, and then the next thing you know, all of a sudden now his judgment is being questioned and Shula's telling him to do it, do it a different way. So, for instance, Shula's way, Shula wanted to win first down every time. He wanted to run the ball and grind out the yards so that, you know, you would have second and short or third and short. And then you could do what you wanted after that. But Unitas, I guess before his time, believed in uh, in disguising your tendencies and and uh, not letting other people know exactly what you're going to do every time. You know that they can scout you on film and they can chart your plays. And for him, he liked to be unpredictable. You know, he would pass, he would make a long pass on first down just as much as he would on on third down. So he. Uh, he, you know, you didn't, you never knew what Unitas was going to do. And so, and that was the way he liked it. And then, you know, he felt like, uh, if you kind of told him how to call the plays, then you took away, you know, nine tenths of his game. He, and he didn't like it. He really didn't like it. I guess the, the coach quarterback combo that often comes to mind to compare the greatness of Shula and Unitas is Brady and Belichick. And I, I don't. I don't think there was really that same. I think Brady's really given more freedom than what Unitas would have been. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess. I guess uh, to call plays at the line, but players today, I mean, they have less freedom than Unitas had because they've got the radios in their helmet, and you know, I mean, I guess a guy like Brady can walk up to the line and change the play, or look like Peyton Manning called all the plays at the line of scrimmage, pretty much, but. You know, in Unitas's day, you know, he called all of those plays. He was control in control of the game. And you have to remember, you know, like a, they were so sophisticated in, in his day. I mean, they were setting up players weeks in advance. So you didn't have television. You didn't see all the highlights like you do, like you do now. And, uh, what the play, what the teams had was they were given three films of their opponent each week to study. I think of the, of the three games that were leading up to your game with them. And so, uh, for instance, Tim Yord told me a story about Night Train Lane, who was almost impossible to beat. Yeah, I, I mean, he was as good or better than any any cornerback in the game today. And, uh, you know, so they were like, well, we you know, said to them, uh, we're not going to throw in, in Night Train Lane's direction. And so Jimmy was like, he we walked away and he said to the United, what, what do you mean we're not going to throw? He said, don't worry about it. We're going to throw over there. So I said, well, what did you guys do? He said, for three weeks leading up to that game, we had this one out pattern that we showed over and over again on film because we knew we'd be looking at it, you know, and then uh, when the actual game came, we ran that pattern right in front of him. He bit on it, and then I ran in the opposite direction, you know, and I had like 30 yards on him when United hit me with the pass, and he says, I said, did you get a touchdown out of it? He said, yeah, but not before he came and heel slapped me anyway, at the, you know, just as I was crossing the goal line, because he was that good. But, but, uh, you know, that, that's the way they did things. I mean, they were setting people up on film, you know, weeks in advance of the, of the actual game, you know, they were showing them something that they would then use to, uh, to beat that person in, in the, uh, when the game arrived. 
So they were very, very sophisticated in how they did things. Yeah, I wonder how often that worked versus not working kind of thing. And Unitas was the field general, the the true ascension of the field general. Um, did you ever get a chance to interview him or Shula for your book? I did, uh, Unitas had died before I started writing the book. And Shula, I went to his home and interviewed him. And, uh, you know, I stayed a, f- a few hours and, you know, sat on his sofa and, and got to ask him anything I wanted. And he, you know, and he did, to the best of his ability, answered everything I asked him. What's the question that you, looking back, wish you would have been able to ask him that you didn't? Hmm, that's a good question. I, I didn't really walk away feeling... uh feeling like I didn't ask him what I wanted to, but I think that, uh, you know, I wasn't sure that I got the answers I was, I was looking for, you know, like I asked him, uh, I asked him what was the problem between he and Unitas. And I think, I think Shula waited 30 years, you know, for somebody like me to come along and get what the, <laughs> what the answer was going to be, you know, he was like a problem. He said, we want to help a lot of games together. What problem was there? I said, well, I said, you know what I mean. There was obviously tension between the two of you. And he said, he said, look, uh, the fact is, uh, he said, I was very young when I got that job and I was very immature and I didn't really handle things the way I, you know, I, the way in retrospect I wished I had, you know, so I think he knew like his screaming and his yelling and his biting at this person. It didn't, it didn't take, you know, it was just, it, it, he, the rest of them dealt with it and they, responded to it and gave him positive results but johnny unitas did not did not like that he didn't like being screamed at it really bothered him and uh you know all the all of his teammates knew it so if he you said that he if he could go back to when he was younger and kind of i guess tell himself to chill out a little bit what type of evolution did you see i don't think i don't think he would use the word chill out but but the sentiment is correct. Yeah, that he. I think he wished that he had, he had he had dealt with Unitas in a in a different manner, you know. But but I guess you know they had very different ideas. About, as I said to you earlier about how they wanted that that offense to progress, you know. And and uh, I think it was tough. And you know, and this is what else Shula said. He said, "Look, you know," he said, "It wasn't re- it wasn't easy being his coach." He said, "I was." You know, I was learning that offense and I had to go into offensive meetings and he said, uh, he said, and I'm sitting there with him and nobody in the world knew that offense better than he did, you know, but I'm supposed to be the boss. I'm supposed to be the head coach. I'm supposed to be setting, you know, the the stage for what we're going to do. And, uh, you know, and it was painfully obvious that he knew the offense better than I did, you know, and he said, that was really, that was really hard. I think that's hard, but it's, it's a good sense of a leader because often when they come into new, even in the business corporate world, the new gen, big general leader is never going to know as much as that frontline worker or that frontline supervisor or whatever it is, is how can they get that information from them and then work as a team to be able to get to the ultimate goal. And of course, Unitas and Shula never got to that ultimate goal, but then later in Shula's career, he did. Uh, do you, do you think there was a evolutionary change in Shula's style or was it just a matter of it just, he took the next level? Well, I think that his situation in Miami was very, very different than it was in Baltimore. 
I mean, when he came into Baltimore, I mean, think about it. Unitas had already won two championships. He was MVP once or twice before Shula got there. And, uh, you know, I think Unitas' feeling was, what is he going to teach me about quarterback that I don't know? But, you know, uh, and, and the rest of the players kind of felt like they knew how to win and, and things like that. They weren't in all of Shula. You know, they were closer to him. They were closer in age and they were, you know, they, some of them had been teammates with him and they weren't in all of Shula. You know, they sometimes, you know, saw him just the opposite. But when he came to Miami, you know, Shula was already, he had a, I mean, he had a higher winning percentage in Baltimore than Lombardi had with the Packers. So by when he got to Miami, you know, those were young players who were excellent players. I mean, they were, it, Joe Thomas had been the general manager and he wasn't a very nice man, but he was a brilliant, uh, uh, personnel, uh, man. Uh, he built, he built the Dolphins. He, he built the Vikings into a Super Bowl team. Uh, so he really, he really knew what he was doing, but you know, they, they were poorly coached. And when Shula came in there and Shula had been a gigantic winner, you know, they really took to him and they really revered him. And, and, uh, you know, so it, it was a really good fit there. You, you know what I mean? But in Baltimore, they'd already been winners before Shula got there. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense of, like you said, the, who's this young kid coming in that's my age versus he already has the track record when he's going into the next, uh, the realm. And right. I, was he the first, the, were the Dolphins the first to make it three Super Bowls in a row? I, I think I saw. Well, they must have been because there were only seven, you know, seven or eight Super Bowls when they won three. So, so, uh, the Packers went to two, then the Colts, then the Colts uh, lost it to the Jets. Then the, uh, then the, uh, Chiefs defeated the Vikings at Super Bowl four. Then in Super Bowl five, it was the Colts and, and Dallas and the Colts beat Dallas in the first year without Shula. And then the next three years, it was the Dolphins went three years in a row, lost to Dallas and then beat the Redskins and then beat the Vikings. Because the Dolphins in my life haven't really been that good, it's like thinking about the Dolphins and that domination during the 70s is like it's unfathomable for me. Well, it's actually unfathomable for me that they're so bad now. Because when I was growing up, you know, and I was first becoming aware of professional football as a young child, I, I, they were the vanguard. I mean, Shula was the considered the best coach in the game, and the, the Dolphins were just inc- incredible. You know, it's interesting, too, because he fought Lombardi all those years. And interestingly to me, the the 72 Dolphins and 73 Dolphins look like a, almost a clone of the Packers. They're very similar to the Packers, that devastating inside-outside running game. And, and then, uh, you know, Greasy reminds me a lot of Bart Starr, where he wasn't flashy, but he was he was pinpoint accurate. He was a great leader, you know. And then when you needed to pass the ball, you had you know, you, you could get the job done. They had Greasy and Paul Warfield, but uh, it was a very similar team to the old Packers teams, I think. Well, I mean, it's one of those things where <laughs> I guess we'll have to deal with it because I'm never going to go back and be able to watch them in their heyday back in the 70s. But if I had my DeLorean, I could, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. If you had your DeLorean and if you were Michael J. Fox, you could go. But but uh, let me tell you, I mean, that was one crusher, crusher of a team. And, 
you know, I mean, there is to this day some question of whether or not that was the greatest team that, that ever was. And, and, uh, you know, and, and then the Colts had several versions of the Colts, both with Eubank and with Shula that might have been considered the greatest team, you know, and, uh, but nobody ever had a perfect season before or since. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a once in a lifetime achievement, you know, and a really incredible achievement. Yeah, it's something that um, they can continue to go, the the whole perfection thing that they always talk about every year when the teams get close to near the end. Um, I guess with that being said, Shula and his career, is there anything else you have to say about the individual, the coach, or the man? Well, he was a very, he was a, almost like a Jekyll and Hyde type of guy to me. Maybe other people would dispute it, but he was such a very nice guy on an interpersonal level. And it, it was very much at odds with the, with the guy that the players described. So that was interesting to me. But he was, he was highly intelligent. He seemed like, uh, very civilized, very, uh, in control type of guy. Not only when I met him in person and spoke to him, but, you know, I've been watching him my whole life on television. And he was, he was a really, uh, you know, he always seemed so, so bright and so calm. But, uh, you know, they described, you know, what a raging, you know, guy he could be, how, how tough, how difficult, how, how in your face he was with everybody. And, you know, I, it was funny to me because I never really saw it that much, you know, when I would observe him on television as a kid. And, and then, uh, when I met him, he was, he was so gentle. Yeah, and you mentioned Michael J. Fox, and well, how about this? I'll give you the virtual keys to my DeLorean. Go back in time, and you can maybe witness a Don Shula moment in person. What moment would it be? Well, I don't. I mean, one one of them would be I would love to go and see those practice sessions between Shula and Unitas. I would love to actually view that in person. I mean, think about it. Those three men, Unitas and Shula, with Rain and Barry in between them, and you know, fighting for that little bit of real estate, and you know, and those those crazy tempers and those crazy uh, crazy com- competition. I mean, I would have loved to have viewed that. That would be one thing. And then if I could pick another, I would have loved to have been present at that 1965 uh, game between the Packers and the Colts in the postseason. Johnny U was injured, and his backup was injured. And Tom Maddy, a running back, played quarterback for the Colts. So they went to Green Bay in the postseason, played Lombardi's Packers, and and uh, should have beaten them, but the score was tied on a disputed field goal, and uh, which was clearly bad. You can look on the film today and see it was bad that the Packers kicked this field goal, but the official called it good. It went into overtime, and the Colts the Colts uh, lost on a, on another field goal. And I mean, can you imagine? Beating, you know, potentially beating Lombardi's Packers with a running back playing quarterback for the entire game. I mean, it's it's uh, it's unfathomable. I would have loved to have been at that game. Yeah, that's unheard of. That's that's something crazy to even think about. And I I didn't realize that even happened as far as uh, the backup. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a very famous moment in, in football. The next year, they raised the the height of the uprights because of that. They called them the Baltimore Extensions. And, uh, I mean, could you imagine, like, uh, to put it into perspective today, could you imagine a Super Bowl in which a team went in with a running back playing quarterback against Brady and Belichick and then, and then for all intents and purposes, beating them? 
you know, except that Super Bowl would be in New England in, in, uh, December or January. And you would, you would pretty much almost steal that game from them. Could you imagine that? I mean, it was a big enough upset when Eli Manning beat them. Now imagine, uh, uh, Barry Sanders playing quarterback and beating them. Well, you're talking to a guy who says that's probably possible because that means he touches the ball every time, but I see what you're saying. <laughs> right. I mean, you're talking about a running back playing quarterback against one of the greatest teams in history, if not the greatest. Yeah, that would show just, to me, how good the coach was and to keep the rest of the players disciplined to follow the plan and just to stick with the plan because otherwise it would have fell apart. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, it was just an unprecedented situation. And in those days, you had to freeze your roster. I think it was like two games before the postseason. So you couldn't bring in anybody for the postseason who wasn't on your roster already. So they happened to lose Unitas, and then they uh, they lost in backup, and they brought in a third quarterback to play out the the, um, the regular season. But he couldn't play; he wasn't eligible to p- play in the postseason. And uh, and Maddie and he split time at quarterback in the last uh, last regular season game or the last two regular season games. And Maddie had to do it in the in the postseason against the Packers. It was crazy. I, I probably it's like I feel like I've read it before. Maybe I read it in your book. But it like yeah, it shocked me. I can't take a look at my book. It's a really interesting story. And you know what else is very interesting about it is that it foreshadowed what happened in '68 because Unitas went down in the preseason, and Shula had a, a feeling that Unitas might not make it, and he went out and got himself a different backup quarterback, and that was Earl Morrill. And uh, Earl was a journeyman. He was a nobody. And he brings him in in the last second. And uh, he ended up becoming MVP of the entire league that year, led them to a 13-1 and record. So he started every single game with Unitas injured. And uh, and uh, that was his record. So very interesting. You know, that, that was the Shula genius. You know, like we saw the bad side of the Shula, but the Shula genius was making it work with these, with these plug-and-play players. Yeah, not a, not just a on the field general, but also having that foresight and the the wherewithal to be able to be prepared. Right. It's like when everything was going bad and the season was going down the tubes. You know, he was totally calm and he figured it out. You know, it's like okay, well, we're going to do this and we're going to succeed anyway, and and they did. He was a really brilliant, a brilliant coach. Do you think the way that you just summed it up is one of the primary factors for why he became the winningest coach in NFL history? I think there's no doubt about it. He, you know, like when he had, he could adapt on the fly, you know, he could take the players that he had, whoever they were, and he could make the most out of them. So, you know, some people would look at his situation in Miami and say, well, he walked in and all those players were assembled really. Yeah. But they never could win anything until, until he got there. And then when they started to go away, he kept that team competitive for, you know, two more decades, even, even though he started to lose those players. And, you know, then when the rules changed, he went out and got Marino, you know, and, and Marino was the perfect player for, for the new pass happy era. And he was, he was, he was very intelligent coach. Intelligent and adaptable. Very adaptable. So for instance, you know, he, uh, like I said, Earl Morrill had a better winning percentage for Shula than Unitas, Greasy, or, or Marino. And, uh, he went, 
He went to Super Bowls with Unitas and, and Marino and Greasy, but he also went to Super Bowls with Morrill and with uh, David Woodley and Don Strock. So he, you know, he could make do with whatever he had. He, he still managed to be a, a winner. Yeah, I, I think that's a good spot to say, well, that kind of sums up Shula's beginning of his career because he almost took down Lombardi with third string running back as a co- as a quarterback type of thing. Uh, with that collision of wills, um, I just want to thank you for stopping by the show. We'll leave a link to your book and everything in the show notes. Is there anything left you have for the uh, listeners of the show as far as the Shula, maybe even the Unitas connection there? No, but I, I just wanted to say to you that I'm a big fan of your work and what you're doing, and it, it's really, uh, really uh, pleasurable for me that you invited me onto your on your show, and I really enjoy you know looking in on what you do on Twitter and and uh, listening to your interviews. So I really, really appreciate you having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, I had to bring in the uh, subject matter expert on the collision of wills, and thank you again, Jack, for joining the show. It's my pleasure. It's good to talk to you. I'll see you soon. There you go. A collision of wills. The winningest coach in NFL history. A legend that had passed away just a little over a week ago. Then on the other side, you have Johnny Unitas. We have arguably the greatest coach and greatest player in NFL history, or at least the greatest quarterback. Not going to say that either one of them are, but that is definitely an argument to be had. Speaking of arguments, and maybe favorite moments, if you have your own favorite moment of Coach Shula or even any other favorite moments, I'd like to hear them. Just like this next favorite moment from one of the first listeners and supporters of the podcast, Jeremy McFarland. Take it away, This dude. is Jeremy McFarland. I've called in uh, a few times about my Tennessee Titans and uh, the moments that made me a big fan of them, but... Uh, this past year, seeing them make it almost to the Super Bowl, knowing that we weren't supposed to make it, uh, it was great for me uh, in a lot of ways. It, it really revitalized the franchise down here in Tennessee. Um, watching Derrick Henry take control, watching uh, Ryan Tannehill revitalize his career, A.J. Brown, the defense take over, knowing that we have – in place the pieces that will make a big difference in the future. But one game in particular against it was the Ravens game that we weren't even supposed to be in the contest and we beat them. I was playing uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 and riding my horse and watching the game at the same time because I couldn't just watch the game. It was driving me crazy. I just, it was, it was getting, it was nerve wracking. And I remember watching Derrick Henry uh, running and realizing that as I was watching and running, I was going the same direction with my horse and nearly ran off the hill, uh, a cliff. Uh, it's just neat moments like that that make football that much better. Thank you. How about that? He had to play Red Dead Redemption because he's so wrapped up in his team and the jitterbugs about if they're going to win or not. But then you have Derrick Henry running it away, and they beat the Ravens. Of course, they go on. Fortunately for him, they lose to the Chiefs, the eventual Super Bowl champions. But that's what it's all about. Fans reliving their favorite moments. And if you're interested in sharing your favorite football moment, or even maybe stating your case for someone that you think should be in the Hall of Fame and they're not, well, you can do so by heading over to myfootballmoment.com for the details. But for now, dudes, I'm through fear through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. 
To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.